Welcome to the Quarter to Three movie podcast for The Descendants. My name is Tom Chick. I am joined, of course, by Christian Mar... Markrosky. Um, it's a Hawaiian name. It's pronounced Howley. <laughs> and if we're lucky this week, I pray and I hope that Kelly Wand is bringing us a The Descendants-related tagline. Kelly Wand, what do you have for us? Uh, hey, I don't like it when I figure stuff out, like in movies or your uh, music. And so that was too easy. <laughs> but, the catch, but that's not the catchphrase. That's just a phrase you can say if you want, but I doubt if it'll uh, catch hold. Catchphrase. Life's like an archipelago. Walking everywhere is not an option. And no matter how far you travel, the boobs are the same. That's good, Kelly Wand. I, I, I like that one. Well done. It was, it was originally the weather's the same, but it changed it to boobs. Does that Be- include beach boobs? No, ah, spoiler. <laughs> Save for the podcast. Uh, well, this is the podcast, so let's talk about All right. Descendants. Uh, but before we get into any spoiler territory, in case maybe you haven't seen it, you don't know what it is, you're wondering, what are these guys on about? Dingus, why don't you give us some very non-spoiler basics about what this movie is that we saw this week? All right, well, this week we saw The Descendants. Mm. So you're mm-hmm. right about the the. Oh, I've been yeah. practicing. No, I'm, I'm well aware. These, this movie was about specific descendants and not just some general vague term, like Immortals, for instance. Right. Wait, I thought it was called Descendant. <laughs> Am I a dumb-er than normal? <laughs> oh, Kelly, you're 100 miles from dumber. <laughs> so this week we saw, yeah, I'm trying to. With this week we saw The Descendants, a 2011 American comedy drama movie Mm. about a man learning to deal with his daughters after his wife goes into a coma. Mm. It is directed and written by Alexander Payne and also written by Nat Faxon and Jim Rash based on a novel by Cowie Hart Hemmings. The movie stars George Clooney, Shailene Woodley, Amara Miller, Nick Krause, Judy Greer, and Patricia Hastie. The Descendants is rated R. Mm. For language, including some sexual references. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, I, that's true. Uh, all right, so uh, the movie is in a limited release, so uh, it's no big deal that on its opening weekend it only made one point two million. Uh, that doesn't. It kind of doesn't count though, because this is one of those limited releases. It'll trickle out across the nation over time. Um, so it's doing well critically, though. The Descendants is currently at 91% on Rotten Tomatoes and 84% on Metacritic. So but that'll change by the time anyone hears this, won't it? Uh, that flux. I don't think so. I think after an opening weekend, those reviews tend to come in. Like, uh, I don't, yeah, I do not think that's in flux. Uh, once a movie's opened, and Descendants has been out for a couple of weeks. Uh, so I think it's been screened for as many critics as, as are probably going to review it. Uh, but you know what? We'll see what effect we have on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't get invited to screenings, I've noticed, ever. Well, but you know what? Stand by. We'll see if this movie holds up at 91% on Rotten Tomatoes and 84% on Metacritic once we're done. Uh, Kelly Wand, now that we've laid out everything we can without spoiling <laughs> the Descendants, why don't you come in here and tell us more specifics? Spoil the Descendants. Yeah, why don't you spoil it? Why don't you maybe give us a plot synopsis? Oh, you mean a dissensus? 
<laughs> Rock and roll. <laughs> the Dissensus. Ready for it? Rock and roll. All right. Uh, I guess I see. I didn't know that meant do this at Dissensus. I thought you were gonna like jam uh, on your <laughs> layers. Book them, Kelly. Ah. <laughs> oh, uh, See for the podcast. Uh, okay, yeah, anyway. <clears throat> the Dissensus. So, uh, George Clooney plays the ultimate relatable everyman, a millionaire lawyer on an island paradise who looks <laughs> like George Clooney and is the descendant of royalty. Despite the shit hand life has dealt him, when the movie starts, he feels strangely optimistic about the future because his wife has just gotten in a motorboating accident while she was out with another man. She may be in a coma, but they've never communicated better. And his cheery voiceover is all, the first thing I'm going to do when she wakes up is buy her a big boat. Because for some reason, that's what he thinks she'll want, despite her coma being caused by... Anyway, he's the descendant of the last emperor of Hawaii, King Macadamia. It's not racist because that's an American uh, state. Because we killed everyone. (laughs) Uh, Except for his two daughters... They're technically the descendants, uh, with boys' names, Kelly Wad and Spearchucker. Although, even with them, he's still probably the last descendant because Spearchucker's a 10-year-old lesbian, and the other one's dating this guy named Sid, whom we know is shooting blanks because he gets baked a lot and says stuff like, Dude, I'm hitting that. When we get married, I'm going to totally be like the fucking king of Hawaii, bro, and vice president of the chess club. Then my ELO will be like 150. Meanwhile, the chunkier daughter acts out her evolving orientation by throwing chairs in the pool like Hesher. (laughs) (laughs) While another kid's mom calls Clooney. She's mad because the daughter told everyone that her daughter has, quote, pubes so thick you'd need a machete to whack through it all to find El Dorado. And Clooney's all, flesh of my flesh, where'd you learn to talk like that? And the daughter's all, uh, movie titles, Machete and El Dorado? Where'd you learn parenting from dusk till dawn? So he drags her to their house and nudges her in the chest with his elbow. And the daughter's all, uh, Haleakala, I'm sorry I compared your woolly pubic thatch to the Amazon jungle and your sex organs to a fabled city of gold. I realize now that no monkey would ever be caught dead in those underpants. And her dad elbows her again, and the daughter mutters. And I'm not just saying that because my dad keeps elbowing me. I really give a shit about your dumbass feelings, whatever. And the other kid goes, that's cool. I'm sorry I suggested putting sand in your bra would make guys like you. They still won't. Maybe try bacon. And Clooney's all, yay, children. Mission accomplished. He flies to Waikiki and drags the other daughter out of school in the middle of the night. And he's all, your mother and I don't spend $35,000 a year for you to go to this school and drink all night. It's more like 37. And she's all, well, don't worry, I think I'm expelled. And fuck mom. And to the other daughter, he's all, where'd she learn to talk like that? And Spearchucker's all, uh, Ides of March, Batman and Robin? So he brings them home, and the hotter, nearly of age, one goes to swim, and she paddles around and then sticks her head out, and she's got seaweed and algae in her hair and a crab hanging from her boob and some barnacles on her clavicles, and he's all, are you a mermaid? And she's all, I'm from Connecticut, and he's all, speaking of which, your mom's dead. Well, not dead. We're pulling the plug on her in a couple days because the doctor says two days' notice is usually enough to give friends and loved ones sprawled across an archipelago as well as on the mainland enough time to say goodbye. 
to her wax-like husk. And she's all, what's a mainland? And why'd you tell me this when I'm in the pool? That makes a huge difference, apparently. And he's all, uh, I just thought tears and chlorine, less hassle. What? Oh, by the way, I need you to come with me to tell everyone we know in person that your mom's dying. I'd do a mass email, but then the movie'd be too short. And she's all, aren't funerals for saying goodbye? Why don't we just have one of those? And he's all, because Hawaiian tradition's something. Also, the movie'd be too short. See above. And she's all, cool, can my boyfriend Sid come along? He has no relatives or discernible means of support and nothing better to do. (laughs) And Clooney's all, wait, I just picked you up from boarding school on another island last night. How's your boyfriend here instantly? And doesn't he have parents? And where is he now? And a goofy kid raises his head out of the pool, and he's all, Hey, Mr. M., what's the haps? That's awesome about your wife, brah. Sweet. I guess since I'm doing your daughter, I should call her mom, though, huh? And he farts in the pool and goes, Somebody order jacuzzi jets? Woohoo! And then he raises a bong out of the pool, and he hits it, and he goes, Yeah, party! And the daughter's all, Isn't he great? His genes have been inside me. And Clooney's all, Uh, well, Sid, is that short for anything? No. Speaking of which, not sure how you get Mr. M out of King, but something tells me once I find out your dad just died, I'm going to like you just enough to say goodnight. (laughs) So they go to a bar, and a blonde guy comes over and goes, Clooney, dude, sorry about putting the old Comarino on the ball and churn, but she said she wanted to drive the boat. My hands were tied. No, wait, her hands were tied. Actually, in that scenario, I guess I shouldn't have let her drive. Hmm. You know, when you look at it like that, it's God's fault. Anyway, on his behalf, sorry about that. Uh, actually, I could use a ride home, uh, and I left my wallet and your wife's sand-filled bra. Maybe you could cover these nachos I just ordered over there. And my friend's Heine. Oh, and his beer. Your wife said you're easy to take advantage of. So they go home, and Clooney goes, anyone want these eggs I made this morning? And the daughter goes, I'm allergic to eggs. And he's all, since when birth? Yeah, yeah, where'd I learn parenting? The Shining, GG. And the hot daughter goes, don't you get it? Mom was cheating on you. And he's all, well, I kind of assume that from the fact that she was in a motorboat with what's-his-face. And she's all, no, this was another dude's motorboat. He had dark hair. And he's all, cool, that narrows it down. Guess I won't have to hire that PI named after a condom. So he runs to the neighbors and goes, who was he? And they're all, uh. So he takes his family and the stoner to the wife's parents to tell them their daughter's dying. And the dad's all, oh, you could have just called. Why did the doctor tell us? And Clooney's all, well, they did put up a day since last accident, one sign at her work. That's kind of like telling you. Look, if you want to say goodbye to her, we're not pulling the plug for two more whole days. Although I guess you could just say it to her voicemail or her picture here. I don't see what difference it'll make since she's pretty much dead already, except in medical terms. Speaking of which, I'm having a party, I mean a wake, for myself to celebrate this real estate deal I'm doing with my cousins. You guys should come. Your daughter's ashes will be there. Probably having an affair with the barbecue ashes. But whatever. And the grandpa's senile wife's all, oh, the Queen of England? And Sid's all, ha, lols, she thinks you're the descendants of a Caucasian island monarchy. <laughs> and the grandpa's all, Caucasian? And hits him. So they drive around later, and the daughter's all, dad, that wasn't cool. And Sid's all, yeah, man, that's like my fifth black guy this week. And that's not even counting my tournament versus Deep Blue. 
And Clooney saw, well, old people are unpredictable. That was the lesson of About Schmidt. Although I, for one, prefer Alexander Payne's early funnier ones, like Citizen Ruth. Anyway, Grandpa's sassy, like you, but with his fists rather than mouth. And the daughter's all, well, you didn't have to high-five him afterward and hand him a gun and say, finish him off. Where'd you learn firearm safety? Burn after reading? And then she's all... (laughs) (laughs) See, See what I'm doing there? And then she's all, OMFG, pull over. So he breaks sharply, and Sid slams through the windshield and gets his sixth black eye. And they all stare at this dude's picture on a bus bench. It's Freddie Prince Jr.'s sidekick from Scooby-Doo and Scream and Wing Commander. And Unermit says, if you like real estate, call Brian Ovoid, 808-U-H-H-H-H. And she's all, that's the guy mom was blowing. And he's all... Uh, and that other scene, you said he had dark hair. And she's all, I didn't mean on his head. And he's all, hmm, pretty plausible, us passing the, this bench just now and you seeing his face. Didn't this happen in that Christina Applegate, Cameron Diaz road movie? And the daughter's all, you think that's a reach? What do you find out you're selling our undespoiled family land to this guy's brother-in-law or something? And that that's just a coincidence. And he's all, oh, yeah, let's go have a last look at the land, long as we're saying goodbye to stuff. So they do. And Clooney's all, yep. We used to camp right there on the beach in between tsunamis. Then high tide would sweep all our tents underwater, and the jellyfish would sting us for hours. Wasn't the best place to camp, I guess. But the view was awesome, at least from inside the tents when they were zippered shut and our eyes were closed. And the profane daughter's all, why is it called a jellyfish? It's not jelly or a fish. And everyone's all, here we are in the Descendants. <laughs> so they listen to some ukulele music and walk along the sunset montage. And Clooney's all, I ever tell you a shark chased your mom up a flagpole one time? She was a real firecracker. The shark, I mean. At least I think it was female. Sure kissed like one. And they find out the Scream guy's staying at the sweat lodge Clooney owns on the undespoiled land, supposedly devoid of lodges. So Clooney and the older daughter go over to make him feel uncomfortable on his porch. And the daughter distracts the guy's wife, Judy Greer, by asking to see her luggage. So Clooney can go inside and hassle the guy more personally. And he's all, did you love her? And the guy doesn't answer, and Clooney's all, I knew it. So have you been in my bedroom? And the guy's all, yeah, at first, but then she told me to take her where it smells. So we did it in your bathroom twice, then in Cleveland. And Clooney's all, I was hoping you'd have the decency to lie about that. And Screech is all, look, I hope this whole infidelity thing won't screw up our real estate deal. I love it almost as much as how your wife tasted around all that vomit while your daughter watched because it was a big bed. And Clooney's all, don't worry, scumbag. If our deal falls through, it'll only be because my daughter wants to go camping. Which, after all, my cousin sue me will probably be her only option housing-wise. And the guy's all, geez, where'd you learn legal ethics? Michael Clayton? Intolerable cruelty? So now that these characters are rather Clooney's, has closure, they go back to the hospital. And Clooney's all, hang on, I want to be alone with your mom for a second. You kids go to the cafeteria and get some carbs. And he shuts the curtain and yells, what the fuck were you thinking, Alice? Infidelity? Motorboats? I want a divorce. This is some lame shit. And there's a knock at the door, and in comes Judy Greer with some flowers. And she's all, 
Hey, I realize wives who learn their husbands had affairs with women don't typically go visit their, that woman's hospital ward with flowers the next day. They generally wish comas on them. But this is an Alexander Payne movie, so I felt someone from my family should be here to say goodbye to her. And obviously my husband would be a poor choice as an emissary because we can't trust them in the same room together. Do you mind if I say something to her? And Clint Eastall, sure, this sounds very constructive. <laughs> the chick leans over the hospital bed and goes, what were you thinking? My husband's 48th mistress, infidelity, motorboats, I want a divorce. This is some lame shit. And Clooney's all, all right, honey, out you go. Where'd you learn irony from? Men who stare at goats? And the mom's unmoving, comatose face is all. When my agent said I'd be playing George Clooney's wife, I guess I should have read the script voiced. The end. <laughs> all right, thank you, Kelly Wand. I think you've now spoiled, uh, uh, what's it even got? The Descendants for everyone. Well done. That's what we're here for. Uh, <laughs> who wants to go first? You. All right. I hated this. God, I hated this. I just. I thought it was just me. I. It uh-huh. was a confused, maudlin, made-for-TV, heartwarming story of redemption, complete with that little last-minute reversal while his pen is hovering conveniently over the dotted line. And I just. That was so predictable. All along, I really didn't care for this thing, and and. I, I did like some of the father-daughter relationship stuff, but most of all, it was just this unfocused mess of stuff about the comatose, unfaithful wife and the family real estate and the situation with the wife's lover. And I, it, it never came together for me. So the whole thing felt like a soap opera, like a little piece of a soap opera. Uh, and I just, I, it lost me early on. And by the time it was over, I, I, I seriously was like, I, I should just leave. <laughs> I really was not into it at all. Uh, I have a theory that movies about characters who are dying that we never got to see before when they were alive are always a mistake. Like Big Chill. Like you don't know the Kevin Costner characters who who cares that he was alive. Uh, I don't that that can be the case. I I just think there were too many other problems Issues. with this. I don't yeah. So okay, so Kelly Wan, you didn't like it either. So Dingus, we're hoping that you're willing to go to bat for Alexander Payne's The Descendants. Are you up to that? Yeah. Good. Get in here. So what did you think of The Descendants? Uh, I, I really disagree with what you just said about it being a, a television soap opera. Uh, because I, I kept thinking that it... it um, Who's the guy who, who keeps directing those uh, uh, What Women Want or... Um, Gary not Marshall. That. Not Gary Marshall. That's not who I'm thinking of. The guy, like, uh, the guy who did Simpsons and now you can only do... James Brooks. Uh, James Brooks, thank you. And I can only do like Spanglish. sappy television, yeah, television drama so far. TV broke them. Because yeah. um, I didn't, I didn't think this ever went there. I thought that this was always far above that, and I really, really liked it. I liked it a little less tonight after I watched Sideways with my dad and my brother tonight. Um, but uh, but I really liked it a lot, and I'm surprised to hear you guys hating it so much. Well, I think that was part of my problem, Dingus, is I went in uh, looking forward to an Alexander Payne movie, and it had none of the bite of something like Election or Sideways. And I remember feeling similarly about About Schmidt, which I so little remember. Like, About Schmidt really didn't register for me. And I think it's partly because... When I think of Alexander Payne at his best, I do think of that kind of mean-spirited bite that some of his movies can have. Uh, And I haven't even seen Citizen Ruth. So maybe that was part of the problem is, uh, 
you know, you mentioned liking it a little less after Sideways. Uh, I, maybe all what made Sideways and Election work for me just being missing in, in the Descendants was just such a big factor. I think. Well, there's I think no Matt, darkness in. Uh, sorry, go on. Well, I think there's there's plenty of darkness. I think it is predictable. I think Kelly was right to make that joke early on, and I think Matt King is probably his least damaged main character or his least unlikable. Would that be right? Because I watched Election and Sideways this week, mm-hmm. and and those guys are are pretty flawed, and Matt is you know has all <laughs> all these funny things going for him, other than he feels bad about things. So I mean that is that is a flaw. I mean he's not he's George Clooney living in Hawaii with a whole bunch of money and and we're we're asked to rely on him saying you know fuck paradise at the beginning to realize that he has a hard time of it. And you know what? Maybe part of my problem too is with with Clooney. Like I, I don't think that you know as much as I like him and he's so likable and I love some of his comic stuff, you know, Kelly Wan mentioning Burn After Reading. He's hilarious in that. He's so watchable in Burn After Reading and certainly Oh Brother Where Art Thou? And his lightweightness plays to, to his favor in something like Michael Clayton. Um, but here it just, I, there, there just seemed like there was a, a lack of kind of soulfulness to the, the suffering I think we're supposed to see. Uh and that's part of why I say made for TV. Uh, to me, uh, almost all of the performances, with the exception of the older daughter, who I thought was fantastic, but almost yeah. all the performances had a, a kind of a made for TV superficiality to, to them for me, I thought. Um, they, like Sid. Like, that's how. Uh... Yeah, yeah. Like, that was just kind of a clown role. Uh, although it did. A, so, well, I don't. We'll speak to that, Dingus. Were you, were you okay with the performances? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love the performances. Um, Sid, to to start with Sid, he immediately rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, I immediately hated him, which I think you're supposed to do. Um, you know, when he's when he's making fun of the grandma, albeit unintentionally, because he's either supposed to be dumb or not dumb. I'm not sure which, but he really grew on me. I I liked that scene that um, that again Kelly rightly I'm sure made fun of, um, <clears throat> where where the two of them have that that chat. And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm always ready with weed. And, and Clooney makes the joke about, well, your mom must be really proud of you. And his, his, his response is maybe. Um, and, he, and he kind of reveals that, you know, I've got this thing that happened to me, too, and I'm not going to burden you with it, but that's what it is, man. And, you know, I liked him. I mean, he's no Chris Klein. I mean, I like the way Chris Klein works ah, in election a lot more. Yeah. Um, but well, he does me... have as much. Go ahead. Before we go to the other uh, performances, because I want to talk about those, what rubbed me the wrong way about that dingus is that he shows up as a clown, and there's the, this potentially kind of dark moment where he's making fun of the Queen Elizabeth stuff. I mean, that that should have some bite to it, and I think they take that away by making him, you know, we've seen magical Negroes in movies. They make yeah. him a magical dude bro. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and that, that whole scene just felt like, what are you doing with this character? Oh, now you want him to be like this. Oh, his dad died. Yeah, his dad died. He suffered too. Now they can't. Oh. So that that kind of felt like this Pat made for TV thing there. And uh, yeah. I didn't believe in any of these characters. They didn't seem real at all. Like, they seemed totally inauthentic, except maybe the older daughter. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm, I'm definitely uh, I, I want to go to bat for her performance. But but talk about some of the rest of the cats, Dingus. So. Uh, so, so even Sid, he kind of won you over. What, what did you think about some of the other actors? Well, I, you know, uh, we'll get to her, but I think Shailene Woodley does tie it all together because I think one of the things that become that I be, 
that I'm able to accept about the various performances is that I think her her performance is, is kind of the emotional core of the film. And and her character doesn't lapse into that sort of um, that sullen teenager, you can't just march in here and be my dad thing that, that so often happens. And I, I totally disagree that Clooney doesn't work in this. I mean, that huh? that moment alone where he's where he's finally saying goodbye to say nothing of the the moment of the moments of anger he has early on, I thought was a beautiful moment. And and I thought his confusion at how to handle um, Scotty and not being able to handle her and failing at uh, at handling even telling her that her mother was dying and having to have somebody at the hospital do it. Um, I thought those things really worked well in that scene that Clooney has. You know, let me let me let me just tell you this: that the, in the in the first, and this always happens in an Alexander Payne movie. Um, there's there's always a moment where I really feel like, oh, you got me, and I'm with you. Um, I mean, you really got me, and I'm all in. And and it was in that that first cousin meeting where all the cousins are talking, and and the camera kind of pushes in on Clooney, and and he says she's going to get better. I know she is going to, or at least that's his voiceover. And and I'm. A little embarrassed to say that because I think that that it's unfair that the movie relies on a voiceover at the beginning, um, but I think it needs to because I think the script isn't as strong as, say, Election, which also has voiceover, or Sideways, which does not. Sideways has other ways of dealing with those things that are much more elegant. Um, but I still liked the voiceover, and I love that moment where all the cousins are talking about the, the land deal, and the camera pushes in on Clooney, and he says, she's going to get better, I know it. And all of a sudden, I just felt like, you got me. Uh-huh. And he carried me through through the film. I mean, it, he's he's a little bit of a lightweight, but I think Shailene Woodley kind of ties them all together, like the I, rug in Big Lebowski. She's the rug. <laughs> you're saying she she really ties them together. Maybe I'm thinking of the drapes. And then that's part of why it bothered me that it didn't focus more on that. Like if the movie had been aware of what it had in terms of her anchoring. I think you talked. You used her. You, you mentioned her as an emotional anchor, Dingus. And I think if the movie had appreciated that better, it would have worked for me. But instead, I think it's so focused on George Clooney and all this other stuff he's going through about the land deal. I think it's burdened with the fact that it's from a novel. So I'm assuming there's a whole bunch going on in the novel that they want to get into the movie. But if the movie had more appreciated and more focused on Shailene Woodley, I, I think it could have worked better because she was really good i loved the easy rapport she had with clooney i loved that she started out doing the solentine thing and got over that even though i don't really feel like i understood it didn't feel like the movie earned that sort of emotional connection that they get i would have liked to have seen more about that uh and less about you know the land deal or clooney freaking out about his wife having an affair and 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 some of the stuff that i felt was pulling the movie in different directions it didn't work so well um when the little girl goes i want to go camping i go oh you know he's not going to sign the contract and that's like tv if i'm that far ahead of of how things are going to go at the end then that is kind of tv-esque rather than paint-esque but that's not why he does it it is why he does it that's the moment when you see his, something cross his face. What? Uh, so, and, and partly the problem is that I didn't really care about him anymore by the time the decision was made. <laughs> so I had kind of lost interest in is he or isn't he. Uh, and, and I kind of thought that, again, it lost focus, but I kind of thought the movie was going to be about him and his daughter tracking down the 
paramour, the wife's paramour. Uh, so that by the time it got around to why he doesn't sign the Landover, I really couldn't have cared less. But Dingus, why do you think? What do you think is behind that big decision that is supposedly like the climax of the movie? Uh, what, what do you think drove that? Well, I really think it's it's um, it's in his line about. Uh, about trust, about the land being entrusted to us. We didn't do anything for this. And, uh, oh boy. <laughs> you know what, if you're right, Dingus, it makes me like the movie even less, because all of that stuff, I was just rolling my eyes, it suddenly... Paperwork. He, he has this, like, political consciousness about the island. Uh, where did that come from? <laughs> His wife dying. His white well, wife. Well, no, no. It's not just that. He has huh? a set of... He has a set of ideals that were passed down to him, and they were passed down from his father about how to deal with money and how to deal with your descendants and how to deal with your children. And and he's very clear about, um, I believe what my father said, you give your kids enough to do something, but not too much so that they do nothing. And and you have this this really cool, it's not, I don't think it's window dressing. You have this really cool dichotomy about him where he's on the phone with the, with the woman who's demanding an apology because... Um, Scotty says she's afraid she's going to fall into the girl's butt crack or whatever. And um, and so she's demanding an apology, and she says, you can't buy your way out of this one, Mr. King. Uh, and then the very next scene, you see him driving over there in his Honda Accord, and you realize he's not a guy who buys himself out of things. And he's sitting in his office eating out of Tupperware, and his house is nice, but not super nice. And he's got a pool that's dirty, and he's got clothes that are just nice enough, as, but you know that's sort of nullified because of... The way everybody dresses in Hawaii, but I think part of his his ideals or his ethics, if you will, is that this is how we're supposed to live. These these are the means that we're supposed to live by, and these this is how we're supposed to raise our kids. And that is that when he's talking about the land and how we didn't do anything for this, we didn't do a thing to get this. It was just entrusted to us, and this this rule of perpetuities has something to say about that. And if we can keep it, then we will find a way to do that. But but just passing it on so that all of us get all of this money just isn't right. And I felt that that was supported by what was going on in the rest of the film. Okay, I get that, Dingus, but then I don't understand why he ever entertained signing it over. Everything we learn about him in the voiceover, where was the tension? Like, I didn't, I didn't understand this struggle to, you know, obviously he felt that way. So why was he even entertaining signing it over? You know, and, and part of it is I feel that that's such a weird like climactic decision for a character to make in a movie about him having to decide to unplug his wife, for instance. Uh, right. Like I, I, was, I was like, this is weird. That this is going to be the climax of the movie. Him finally not signing the paper because, as we know, he has this thing about trusts and obligation. Uh, I don't understand why he ever entertained signing it over. Uh, or even really the terms. Like, if it was really that easy to just decide, you know what, we'll figure out something in the next seven years. Seven years, yeah. Why, why Sequel. So, so you know what, Dingus, I get that you're saying that there's some groundwork for the character there, but I guess I didn't understand why that's supposed to be this sort of dramatic conflict that we watch him go through. I didn't I didn't feel on that regard. In other regards, it was that sharply observed or drawn a character if I couldn't understand that struggle. Um, well, I, I think he's somebody who feels a tremendous amount of responsibility for his entire family. And he says early on, you know, it's all on me. I'm the one that is the person who ha holds all the cards. And he doesn't do that voiceover as if that's a positive thing or as, haha, I hold all the cards. This is a burden. This is a huge burden for him. And I get the sense that life is a burden for him, that, that keeping the business running in a way that, um, that 
uh, is true to his father's ideals or true to what his father passed down to him is difficult for him. He could choose the easy way out, and everybody says, "Why don't you?" And all of these cousins are broke, and they're and all of them are constantly putting pressure on him. And that's what you get the sense of. He's this guy. He's he's guy who probably feels just like a normal guy, even though he looks like George Clooney, and he doesn't know how to be a father, and he doesn't know how to do these things. So of course he's going to buckle to the pressure early, and you know that. You say making a decision to to take the decision to take his wife off life support wasn't his decision. He didn't have that decision to make. That was her decision. Right. right. I'm just saying that that was a much more to me sort of visceral, relatable thing. And yet the movie focused on the land deal. Uh, and again, right. I, you know what? I, I think a lot of that probably has to do with how the novel was written. And I, uh, Kelly Wand, you're our source material expert. What is it like in the book? It's exactly the same. <laughs> Uh, I, I will say though, Dingus, there's one one scene where I threatened to actually love this movie, uh, and, and there were there was just because there were a lot of things going on. I could see two, I could see all three of the actors actually doing cool stuff. I could see Alexander Payne doing some cool direction, and that is the pool scene. I loved that pool scene and the cut to Shailene Woodley is that her name to her going underwater and just sort of having that that quiet moment of grief down there and when she swims towards the camera you don't know is she coming to george clooney is she just getting out of the pool uh and i also love to touch in there where she's sitting at the pool and he's coming out to talk to her and she says something about the pool being dirty and he picks up the the big old net and starts cleaning the pool like i i loved that little bit of detail and i wish the movie had had more of that because i felt like it it got into these almost like sitcom-y made-for-tv situations where he's like stalking the paramour and stuff but that moment where he, she says that about the pool and he picks up the net, I loved that. That whole pool scene almost won me over, and I don't think there was anywhere anything else in the rest of the movie that I, that worked that well for me. Then it got more generic, yeah, and not pain enough, a lesser pain. Uh, Kelly, one, did any of the scenes jump out for you? Did any of it uh, really grab you at, at any point? Uh, Other kinda... than Shailene Woodley in a bikini. Yeah, <laughs> I know that was troubling. <laughs> Because <laughs> I that, was—that's how they dress in Hawaii, just so you know. Right, and so everyone, and so their standards are different. Uh, so the I, pool, by the, that age, she would be married. <laughs> the pool the scene worked for me. Did any of them work for you pretty well, Kelly? Wan? It sounds like I, you and me are both down on it. What scenes did you like? Well, I just wanted—I wanted more of what you're talking about, like just mm-hmm. more. Because Alexander Payne sort of takes characters that, um. Always make interesting decisions to, to steal Sid, Ma- Sid Meier's line, uh, and there just wasn't any, there weren't enough decisions for Clooney to make. But I was kind of enjoying the scene where um, they go and confront the cuckolder guy, just because it didn't really go the way you th- like. It wasn't a big revenge. I mean, it was kind of an inconclusive scene, but it's at least a little. It wasn't what I was expecting, and by that point, I was putting a lot of uh, value in anything that wasn't what I was expecting. Right, right. Something unpredictable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it just kind of fizzled out in a way that was interesting to me. Well, and I really loved Judy Greer showing up because I think she's adorable. I, I She's really funny. Uh, she's just fascinating to watch. I love Judy Greer. So when she shows up at the hospital room, I also thought, saw, I thought oh, okay, now we're going to get some kind of payoff. And I thought that kind of oddly fizzled. Right. She just kind of freaks out and he shows her out. Uh, yeah, he shows her out. All right, later, get out. I didn't uh, understand that. I didn't understand what they were doing with this potentially cool character they introduced and this great actress. Uh, so that kind of bothered me. Just shoveling her on stage for a minute. 
for one last non-TV-esque. Because there was so much TV stuff in this, the James L. Brooks stuff. Like, all those montages where you hear him saying just a couple lines, but you don't quite get the whole conversation. You don't get, like, his speech to the cousins. Like, it, it robs you of the stuff that would have made it more distinctive. Yeah. Like, a these fish have manners speech. <laughs> what was the these fish have manners speech? Well, no, from uh, Jerry Maguire. Remember oh, I, I thought you were referencing. Oh, I thought you were referencing no. Catfish, because <laughs> there's a speech about fish and Catfish, which you loved, Kelly Wand. Well, Tom, what do you think of that first scene with Judy Greer on the beach, where she goes up and she says, "You guys stay in the zone, Skyler and Colt." You know, I, I think Judy and Brian should be fired from Parenthood for calling their kids Skyler and Colt, for one thing. But what do you just think of that about that little scene on the beach where Clooney, where a Matt King approaches right. Julie, Julie Spear. Well, what I hoped was that at that point we were going to see this cool little mystery uh, where George Clooney and his daughter unravel the relationship. Uh, and I was just so tickled that Judy Greer had showed up. Uh, so I liked that scene. Um, but but I don't know. Obviously, like that struck you for some reason. What what did you dig about that scene? Well, what do you? What, why is he doing that? Why is he's he trying to get intel? He's but later she would know that they were stalking her. Yeah, it seemed like he's just doing, like, the, so much of the movie is just like him doing recon. That, yeah. That's sort of what I got, that's the sense I got from that scene. Did you think there was more to it than that? Well, at first I thought, is he trying, at first I thought what you, along the lines of what you're saying, that we've got sort of a, a Manhattan murder mystery kind of caper kind of thing going on where he's going to try to get Brian to come to him by planting some seeds with her, so Brian has to come to him. But that's not what he's doing at all. I I think what happens is that it's not like a TV soap opera, and I, and I think that you guys are really being unfair to it by saying that over and over again, especially when you reference such scenes as her coming to the hospital, which is a really powerful scene. Um, but I think what he's doing is not knowing what the hell to do and just going by the seat of his pants because, you know, he's he's with uh, Alex in particular, who is much more of a free spirit than him. And he's much more willing to say, Dad, I know where he lives. Dad, let's do this. Dad, let's Google him. Dad, stop here. And and Clooney's not used to that. And so he's or Dad, don't be a pussy, you know. And so he sees her on the beach. He 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 plants them in front of the house. He's I don't think he knows what he's going to do. And so he goes up to her and he starts to do this awkward conversation that doesn't really go anywhere and is really right. awkward. Falls off, and then he just walks away. And I think it's just a guy who isn't doing capers. He doesn't know any better. He's just, what do I do next? Right. And and that's what I like about it. I don't think that's soap opera at all. I mean, a soap opera has sort of these laid out kind of things where, you know, when when um, when uh, her when Elizabeth's father says she's a good girl, somebody blurts out she cheated on him. Well, that doesn't happen. George Clooney just swallows it. I mean, uh, by soap opera, I mean Dingus. Uh, I'm talking more about like soap opera doesn't necessarily have to be an indictment. I think the bigger indictment here, and I think what Kelly Wan would agree with me on, is it has this kind of made-for-TV lightweightness to it. Yeah. Uh, but but soap opera doesn't have to be a bad thing. I mean, there are some great movies that when you describe the plot, it sounds like a soap opera. And Dingus, I wish you would one day see Twenty One Grams because it's the same thing. If I were to sit down and tell you what happens in Twenty One Grams, it would sound exactly like a story. <laughs> arc in Days of Our Lives. There's this fantastic uh, German movie called Revanche. Maybe it's French. Uh, 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 where, uh, uh, where a cop's wife... Yeah, you know what? I don't even want to spoil it, but there's a movie called Revanche, which I love, and if you describe the plot, it's like, holy cats, that's Days of Our Lives. It's General right. Hospital. Uh, so soap opera doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. It's more like describing, you know, the guy's dying wife uh, in 
the guy discovers that his dying wife's having an affair. That is soap opera, but it doesn't have to be a slam. Um, but I do stand by that for me personally, it had a very made-for-TV lightweightness to it with the way it was directed and acted. Uh, and I think of you, surely you'll grant me this, Dinkus. Did you hate how the little sentimental music was drizzled over it? Can I at least appeal to you on that level? Because I know you probably did. Did you hate the music? Uh, I'm afraid <laughs> I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to. Punch. Well, I'm not really big on Hawaiian ukulele music anyway. <laughs> there is a moment um, in the middle where there's this transition shot where you see outside the hospital. There's like this little plot of land that between wedged between buildings that has a cemetery on it and, it and it shifts to the to the hospital and the music shifts from this uh, ukulele stuff mm-hmm. to more guitar and a little bit slower and that was a relief but i think yeah you're <laughs> right it, this this music had had one of those sort of um somebody coordinated the music somebody didn't compose the music kind of things and it didn't Ooh. really work well it had a- and, and it had a very on-the-nose, let-me-tell-you-how-you're-going-to-feel-about-this-scene kind of thing to it. Which is what that music does. It's the same thing. It's like Christmas music, but Hawaiian. And yeah, and I object to that more than the ukulele. Like, one of the things I really did like about the movie is its sense of place, about being Hawaiian-ness. And so I was okay with the ukulele in, in that regard. Uh, so, I, you know, I... I can't complain about the ukulele. I did... I, I think the movie should have been called, though, an alternate title should have been... Hey, Hawaii's really pretty, isn't it? <laughs> I've noticed when they shoot movies in places like Hawaii, it always feels like this. It's like lazy. Like, like the crew can't get their sh- heads in the game because it's so chill and they're, it's so pleasant, the weather, that it puts everybody to sleep. That's my theory. Like that, What's that Owen Wilson movie where he's in Hawaii? It's like... Couples therapy. Or no, couples. No. Because no, I, it's, I, a, it's, a, it's an Elmore Leonard kind of deal. Oh, uh, get shorty or no? Everybody's get, gonna get it. Get get out of here, you! <laughs> it's, it's called like bonk or blow or blows. Oh yeah, bounce. stench bounce. 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 Very good. Wait, that's not the okay. Yeah, right. Bounce. <laughs> See, even the title, you're like, yeah, yeah, it won't be, it won't stick. But I love the bit, like I love the casting of the smaller parts, like they're best friends, by the way, where he runs to the, and I like that scene too, where he runs over to the house. Uh, they're best friends. Like I loved the casting. I loved a lot of the incidental characters. That that line about everyone looks like a stuntman or a bum. <laughs> I loved that. I loved the way the people dressed. I loved that guy Troy who showed up. Uh, th- that and that all goes into the sense of place that I thought it had. And on that level, I really liked it. Uh, and I loved the joke too of the little travel graphic for when they're island hopping. You know, normally you have Indiana Jones crossing the Atlantic and the dotted line going across the map. This is just a little map of Hawaii and a little yeah. short dotted line from one island to the other. That was that was really cute. That was a cute touch. Um, it's cute. It's a cute movie, but I don't like cute Alexander Payne. Yeah. I like wretchedness. So we know all wretchedness. You know, I've so talked- the wo- the woman who was his friend, by the way, was uh, was one of the voices in Buried. Who? Oh, that that's a good. That's a very good detail, Dingus. I like that. Uh, Which woman was? Her name was like Mary, E or something. Yeah, her name was. I think it's Kai. Yes, yeah, it's very. Um, and her name, her the actress's name is Mary Birdsong, and she was the four one of the four one one operators in Buried. Which is kind of a shame because she's got a great face. I mean, it's one of those great like actress faces. It's like kind of like uh, the woman who played Marib in, in Winter's Bone. I, I like love that sort of like just oh, nice. like, character in her face. Uh, 
I, I will say, so uh, I forgot what, maybe, yeah, we were watching, when we saw Green Hornet, I raised an objection to like some of the news broadcasts in the back <laughs> of the movie because I was so bored of it. Here's where I knew that I was really bored of this movie. When I decided this movie is so unrealistic that I'm not buying any of it. And that's the moment where they take the plane to the other island and they run into, I think, Cousin Brad. And Cousin Brad is like, hey, let me give you a ride. So all five of them get into Cousin Brad's Jeep Wrangler. Now, I have a Jeep Wrangler like that. And I happen to know that when you put five people in that Jeep Wrangler, you cannot fit so much as a paper bag. You can't buy, you can't get groceries. You can't get a single bag, like a six pack of beer or something will not fit into your Jeep. So here's my question to you guys. Where did their luggage go? They don't have any luggage. They're like on a Hawaiian island. They don't Cousin travel. Brad, they travel cousin, light. cousin Brad was dragging a suitcase. If he's going to give three, four people a ride in his Jeep Wrangler, he has to leave the suitcase at the airport. And he certainly can't go gallivanting off to look at property. Uh, I just, can't you have somebody bring your luggage to your place, like some houseboy? Well, if the movie had been realistic, we would have seen a scene where Cousin Brad is like, excuse me, Porter, could you have this luggage delivered to this address? <laughs> also, I own land in Hawaii. That In that time of year, it, the weather's nothing like that. <laughs> so that, that bothered me, too, for different reasons. I also have a quick request to both of you. If I am ever in a coma, please, please, please close my mouth. <laughs> yeah, well, Han Solo's mouth is open. <laughs> that was carbonite, though. That's what carbonite does to you. Why did they put her in carbonite? That's a good question. Dingus, can you feel that? What do you guys think of their ashes being poured into the ocean versus uh, being chopped to bits like in Kundun and fed to buzzards? What do you guys want done with your remains? I want to be in a coffee can and blown in somebody's face. <laughs> that was a far better uh, ashes scattering scene, yes. Uh, that's two Big Lebowski references we've had, and certainly and the most appropriate one so far. They did it. They stole it in Two and a Half Men. Did you guys watch that? Uh, how did you, what did you guys think of Morgan Freeman's performance in this movie? What did, What's that from? Oh, I love that so much. Uh. Because he's talking about their ancestors, which is the he's prequel. T- <laughs> it's it's March of the Penguins, which is about oh. dad, which is about fathers stepping up. I mean, I know that's going to be too on the nose for you guys, but I I love that. By but by that time, I was just a I was completely quivering puddle in in this movie, and I, it didn't work for you guys. But I was just it's knocked out. Heartless bastards were heartless geldings. You're not at all. I know you're not at all. But but the movie really worked for me, and I was in a in a packed audience, and the, it was working for the people all around me, too, but maybe because I was blubbering like an idiot. No, 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 it was in California. Mm. And so March of the Penguins, I loved that, because it, it's, it's about dads. I you just know, made them all cold just watching it. Well, they were eating ice cream. Oh. Uh, and maybe it's just I've been watching too many sitcoms lately. I've been, I've been uh, consuming a, a steady diet of sitcoms lately. So maybe I'm just attuned to uh, made-for-TV sensibilities. I don't know. Which ones? I know you star in them, so you're obviously researching a role. <laughs> uh, I, uh, we'll, we'll cover that on our TV podcast. But uh, Modern Family and Up All Night. What do you think of that? What's Up All Night? Uh, Christina Applegate, who was also mentioned earlier. Oh. And, uh, and Will Arnett. Uh, it's terrible, though. Don't, don't watch that. Um. <laughs> 
I don't know why I'm watching it. I, I take back uh, my plug for Up All Night. Um, is Samantha Who a sitcom? Uh, I don't know what that is, so I'll say no. Uh, was it, Am I missing an Alexander Payne movie between About Schmidt and this? Sideways. No, Sideways was before About Schmidt, wasn't it? Nope, Sideways was after About Schmidt. Uh, Sideways was his last movie. Yeah, I'm right about it. Dingus, back me up on this. Am I right or wrong? I think I'm right. Yeah, you're right. Didn't yeah. we, haven't we talked about this? Yeah. He went from Sideways to The Descendants. Correct. Well, you know, Sideways was 2004, wasn't it? Yeah, that's eight. He goes seven years without making a movie, like Terrence Malick. I think it's noteworthy that everything he is Citizen Ruth based on a novel. And what about about Schmidt? Actually, so I don't know. I know that I know that Election Sideways and uh, uh, the Descendants are all based on novels. Uh, right. So so part, partly I want to just say, you know what, Alexander Sh- uh, Payne, pick better novels. Or or get Jim Taylor to, to write with you, because Jim Taylor just produced this. He didn't write with him. And Jim Taylor has worked on the screenplay worked on the screenplays with him for Election and Sideways, I think. At least Election. I think Election is probably the sharpest. Although I I know Sideways is the one you like the most. Dingus, how would you compare this to Win Win? I kind of had a feeling that question was going to be Because I, I think the things that Descendants tries to do, uh, Win-Win handles much better. Uh, and Win-Win, by the way, soap opera You know what? If you were to describe that, that sounds kind of like a soap opera plot, like the, the long-lost kid and they bring him in and maybe not so much. But uh, address that question. What do you think of that? Well, I think Win-Win is more comfortable with letting the female emotional center of the movie uh, get to actually drive the car um, for a good part of the movie, whereas this doesn't that doesn't happen here because it's George Clooney uh, instead of um, Paul Giamatti, and you know, and Amy Ryan you can trust. Right. Uh, so I think that that's a little difficult. Well, but they're both movies about these sort of emotionally removed men struggling with issues of family and uh, these crisis moments, and um, and they both have that sort of kind of like they're not quite serious they're not quite comedies um they both you know what they're both i'll say and i used this when we talked about win-win they're both kind of sundancey maybe well win-win feels much more sundancey to me and i was thinking about that today it feels it feels lighter now that i when i when i think about it than this does but but the main character is darker yeah so and he's, I think decisions to make. He's. I think Win Win has more of that cutesy Sundance thing that you were talking about when you first said how Sundancey does this feel. Yeah. And I don't think Descendants does that. Descendants for me felt darker than it did for you guys, and it affected me emotionally much more. Mm-hmm. Kelly Wand, how would you say Descendants compares to Sucker Punch? <laughs> uh, what was the girl's nudity scene in the thing you were talking about? What? What do you want about? Oh, uh, Emily Browning in Sucker Punch is very, very naked very often in, in Sleeping Beauty, but uh, that's... And you've seen that? Yes, yes. And that's the twilightization of another fairy tale? <laughs> no, no, good lord, I'm confused no. again. Not at all. It has nothing to do with uh, Sleeping Beauty. It's a strictly a sort of a, a descriptive title. It's not tying into a fairy tale. Um, oh, uh, uh, but we'll, we'll cover that on our Sleeping Beauty podcast. 
Uh, I was the someone I saw the movie with said that what's the older daughter's actress name? Shailene Woodley. Shailene Woodley. She's supposed to be on a show, and she's oh, she's so bad on that show. She's the worst actress on it. And I go really because she's the best in this movie. <laughs> so I was was wondering if you were familiar with that show. Well, you know what? I did look up on IMDb. She obviously has like a lot of TV credits that include things like uh, I think like the OC and stuff like that. I mean, she seems like very much a uh, TV actress, uh, and that's not always a bad thing. You know what? So is George Clooney. Oh. Yeah, she reminded me of Tatum O'Neill, kind of like she was. Oh, always... good, Kelly Wand. That's good. She that's was feisty, good. and she was usually right about stuff. Like, yeah, good point. Touche. She saw the value in Sid. <laughs> the Dingus did. Uh, Kelly Wand, I just want to say, so I. I couldn't help but watch the movie and think that I bet Dingus was kind of a lot like Sid minus the stoner part when he was that age. Did that you see? Did you see like much? that now? <laughs> if D- Dingus could kind of grow his hair out and look a little Sid-like, that's how he got Wendy <laughs> by insulting uh, her grandma. Remember, Dingus, have you ever been punched by your father-in-law? Uh, how many times? One, two, three, not only you and me, got one eighty to three, and then I'm caught in between. Come one, two, three, be fun, free, getting down. Really? <laughs> and we fizzled out like the scene in the movie. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you know what? So it's a it's a nice two to three split or two to one split. Um, are we just dick? so there you go? And Dingus is not a dick. I think we can agree Dingus isn't a dick, but are we dicks? That's the controversy. You know what? Yeah, there's no shame. You just felt yeah, the There's way no shame felt. in not liking a movie, yeah. Maybe if we had kids, we'd be girly like him, though. Let's do a three-by-three. Three. Stop yeah, talking. Now that uh, we've covered Descendants. Parallel universes. Uh, <laughs> Whose three-by-three is this? Yours, fool. It was a nightmare. I hate you and your stupid topics. You're terrible at this. Now, interesting, because I'm, I'm curious to hear about this, Kelly Wan. Before we get to you, though, you'll be going first. This week's 3 by 3 are your favorite uses of the color red in a movie. Uh, I mentioned the way that Don't Look Now, the Nicholas Rogue kind of psychological thriller, has a little girl in a red, like, uh, I think it's a little hooded jacket running around. Uh, and the fact that it's red is very intentional. Uh, it sort of ties in this little Red Riding Hood theme, uh, and that idea you can see in other movies. There's a movie that Dingus and I love called Vinion, where uh, a little missing child is in red. Um, Steven Spielberg did the little girl in red thing in Schindler's List. Um, so uh-huh. that made me... Th- there's there's a famous scene in Schindler's List where there's a little girl in red, isn't huh. there? Isn't that... What, do you not I, remember that? I don't remember that. Yeah, it's, the one, it's the one instance of color in the movie, and it yeah. could have been one of our picks, right? You didn't take that off the table. Was I, Don't Look Now off the table? I cannot believe I did not mention that last week when I was talking about the whole Little Red Riding Hood thing. So if, if sorry if I screwed up somebody's pick, but I thought I mentioned it. No, no, you didn't. Okay. But when I mentioned, because my brother asked what it was this week, and I told him, oh, it's the, the uses of red, and he said, oh, like Schindler's List? Well, you know what? Maybe, <laughs> really? Yeah. And, huh. Well, we'll save that. So we'll save specific instances. I also don't want to ruin, for instance, like maybe one of you picked The Saint, which is that, or not The Saint, what was it, that thing, that Frank Miller thing where it's in black and white and then there's red every now and then. Uh, Kelly Wand, you know, uh, the guy, it's like, it looked like Sin City, but it was... Uh, the Kelly Spirit. Wand, the Spirit, thank you. 
<laughs> I didn't see it. I heard it. I, did you see it? No, nobody saw that. Uh, but I think it had a similar thing where there might be scenes where there was just one red thing. I think it didn't the spirit oh, have like a red scarf. Or maybe that's, maybe that's Doctor Who. I don't know. No, no, no. You're you're right because that because rem- I saw something this week and I meant to bring this up when we were talking. There's this there's this anthology film called uh, Paris Jatem, and one of them has um, uh, that one guy in it, the guy who played Frodo, um, Elijah Wood in it. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and, and it is all sort of that that washed out black and white with just this glossy red blood kind of thing happening exactly like the spirit. And the reason I watch Parish Atem is that Alexander Payne directs the last one with oh. uh, uh. with, with um, Margot what's her name Margot Martindale who was in Win Win and it's it's and it's really a beautiful little little vignette and and uh, anyway um, I watch that to just see that last Alexander Payne thing but it has that thing that Tom's talking about from the spirit. So, Dingus, we're going to assign you to watch The Spirit, because Kelly Wand and I don't want to see it. I've seen it. It's horrible. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. So, so what this is are just your favorite instances of the color red. Kelly Wand, you say you hate this topic. Uh, was this difficult for you? What, what's going on that you hate it? It's too hard. I don't like I, it. One of the reasons that I threw it out there is you could put in pretty much anything here. Uh, and Kelly Wand, it seemed right up your alley, something that broad. Uh, well, I made the mistake of asking people for help, mm-hmm. and they, they would always like, how about Red River? How about the Red Sea and the thing? No, that wasn't even red, first off. Oh, well, how about the uh, Red River? No, that wasn't red either. It's a title. Thank you. What well, about- let's find out what you actually did come up with, though. Uh, so Stuff about that, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> or well, stupider. You know well, good. I look forward to hearing what it is. What is your number three? Because you're introducing next week's three by three. So, what is your number three pick for this topic? My number three is um, Hal 9000's Eye in 2001 because it was red and it was a tip off. He was insane or baked like R2D2. Well, now you've uh, taken my number one, Kelly Wand, because. Uh-uh. Uh, no, no, seriously. Like, uh, so all of mine are, uh, and we'll talk about it because it is my number one. So we'll jump ahead to that. All of mine are instances where red is about the loss of control, and how the like 2001. And and this is another. I hate. I, I freaking sat down and watched three movies today. One of which was 2001. Uh-huh. I wanted to double check some things and ended up rewatching these things. 2001 is such. It has such this sort of white. Palette, especially in that discovery sequence, uh, Hal's red eye, just as a as a character, it's just a camera lens with a red light inside of it. Uh-huh. it it's so vivid. I mean, it pops against the production design in 2001 so starkly. Um, and what's great about it is you've got this this pristine white ship. You know that 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 set and that red light. It's so it's like something urgent. You know, a red light is signaling something urgent and important, but juxtaposed with Douglas Rain's sort of calm voice and the way Hal mm-hmm. talks, it's this great juxtaposition, and it's eerie, and, and the fact that it is a red light behind this camera lens. You know, a camera lens is something that watches you, and that red light, there's something urgent in there. Uh, I love that. And Kelly Wan, you know, and when we have, like, zombies and maniacs, they have red eyes. So you're yeah. right. It's this sense that, you know, there's this, like, crazy, there's something weird going on there. Um it was before Predator and all the other robo and Terminators and RoboCops and all that bullshit. But also too, the inside of his brain's red. 
Well, that's the thing. It's right when it's sort of like when when they go into when uh, Bowman goes in to disconnect him, it's almost like crawling into his innards. It's like in his guts. And there's this red. There is there are occasions in in 2001 where there's a cockpit that has a red light to it. Uh, And there's a couple of those before we get to Hal's disconnection bay or whatever you call that area. Um, But there's this very clear sense that 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 he has crawled into Hal's red innards in that disconnection scene. Uh, and I love that. I love how it looks against, uh, and that's did, all we really need to see of how. When Douglas Rain did his dialogue, did he have that visual to go by? <laughs> like, this is what people are going to be seeing when you say this. I don't know. Uh, I would I would love to know, though. That's a very good question. Kelly Wan, do some research into that. All right, I'll look it up. <laughs> Dinga Slip, 2001's on everyone's list but yours. I guess you don't uh-huh. think... Uh, well, that was another thing watching it again, Kelly Wand. Is I don't, Dingus, what is your beef with 2001? Because it's really like it, it has this Kubrick erraticness where it's a couple of different movies and not all of them work well. Um, I thought you didn't like it either, though. No, no, I, please. I have always thought 2001 is great. Uh, what? You're always picking on me with Dingus. You're always getting up on me. No, I'm happy to pick on you, but that doesn't mean I don't <laughs> love 2001. Mm, you're a revisionist. Well, here's here's so I uh, Dingus, I'll be curious if you agree with me. One of my the weird things about 2001 that I didn't really realize until I rewatched it today, that middle passage about Hal going crazy and and killing the the scientists and killing Frank and all that stuff it has nothing to do with the monolith stuff. It's like a separate movie. Right. What the hell? It happens sometimes. You can't have a movie about two crazy, wild things. That's like having a movie about a real estate deal the same week your wife's plug gets pulled. <laughs> uh, so that's my that's one of my beefs with it, is that there's really no. separate movies there, and I don't understand... That's I, one of the things I love about it. Because you, you go, oh, what's the connection? Huh? Nothing. <laughs> well, they can't do that. You can't have... Hang on, i got to disconnect this computer so I can get into the fucking wormhole. One second. Okay, they're a douchebag. <laughs> all right, what'd you need, aliens? Oh, all right. Got this. No problem. So, Dingus, what is your beef with 2001? Every time I watch it, when I get to that Starfield sequence, I just want to shoot somebody. Well, you've just seen two hours of an awesome movie by the time you get to that Starfield sequence. Yeah. So be grateful. Well, Mr. Yeah, I should shut it off at that point, but I never do, because sometimes I'm in a movie theater, and yeah, I have yeah. gone to movie theaters to see it. And you're sitting there, and you're just like, really? And I just get more and more angry at him for doing that. Hey, the Bible's like that. I think it's totally self-indulgent, and it annoys the hell out of me. That's a fair point, Dingus, because I certainly didn't sit through any of that when I was watching my DVD. <laughs> of course you didn't. Uh-huh. But you know what, Dingus, throughout, though, it's self-indulgent. Like, it, it has such long scenes where it's just, like, admiring, and not even admiring, just kind of putting on display the set and the special effects and even this long briefing scene before you really know what's going on it's just like a long scene of a bunch of dudes at a table talking to each other like i kind of admire some of its self-indulgence even though i'm not going to sit around for that final half hour uh, well uh, you, you guys are missing the best part of the movie because when he eats the dinner you can hear the aliens in the background and you can almost understand what they're saying if you're on a lot of acid. <laughs> Wait a minute, what you hear? What you, okay, that's the acid talking. You yeah. can hear them, and they look. Uh, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> a lot of things are great. Like Dingus likes the Bible, and that the Jesus stuff's cool. And then there's another hour of uh, Ephesians and Corinthians after that. What? So, what are you talking about? Yeah, Dingus. Saying, 
saying Stanley Kubrick and God. Well, I said earlier this year, my I was embarrassed because my favorite part of uh, of Tree of Life is probably the part I, I like least about 2001. Mm. Wait, what? In Tree of Life, there's a wormhole? Well, there's that whole interlude in the middle where we find out where the world came from. Mm. Oh, the, just the indulgence, the co- cosmic level indulgence. You're saying exactly. Normally, exactly. you don't care for you didn't care for it in 2001. Well, see, that's I, I feel though it ties very perfectly into Tree of Life. We talked about that a bit before. You know, once you ask right. questions about suffering, you do call into question. You know, what's going on in the cosmos? I don't understand what the heck was going on at the end of 2001. Oh, uh, he's going and he's he's evolving into a star child. You know what? <laughs> Whatever. That's my response to that. <laughs> It's also Europa can uh, have diamonds showering on it. Now, see, Kelly Wong, why did you hate this uh, this three by three when you and I are, are seeing eye to eye on this? All right, well then you like my number two, but then I ran out of gas. It just seemed uh, like so too arbitrary. I, like I said, I was talking to other people and they they put poison in my head. Well, you know what, Kelly Wong, that was. Hal's uh, Hal was my number one choice, so I'm curious to find what your other two are that you think are better uses of the color red than 2001. So we'll get to that. Dingus, how did you feel about this topic? We're starting to lose you, Tom. I don't know yeah, you're getting the gall garbly, but I don't want to risk it. Maybe we should just pretend it's fine. Okay. The way uh, Hal's saying. Yeah, can you hear me? Am I? Am, do I sound like That's a... Good. A disconnected AI or stop recording? Was that the trick? No, I didn't. Let's uh, let's power through. Uh, let's assume that the sound quality is good. And anyone's listening? What's the what other are you thing? doing? Easy. What are you doing, Tom? <laughs> I can't do that, Dingus. <laughs> dingus, what did you think of this topic, Dingus? I loved it, Tom. That's sounding oddly homoerotic. Please don't do yeah, that. Sorry. I apologize. <laughs> I really, I really liked it a lot because because uh, I thought of some really cool ones, and I think I know. Given that your stated um, theme is the loss of control, I think I know what one of yours is, but it didn't make my list. I'm going to guess Harry. too. Hmm. I'm sorry. Say that not, again, Dingus. I couldn't hear you. <laughs> I'm going to guess it's your number two, but I did not. I did not okay. pick it. It narrowly missed. But these are more. Um, Avatar's blue. Mine are a little more broad and thematic, I think. All right, I'm going to put a star by my number two choice to see if you did get it correct, Dingus. All right, thank you. All right, so uh, yours are a little more broad, you were saying? Yeah, I think so. Okay. What What is your number three choice, then? All right, my number three, I'm going to give you guys a quote. Mm, good. All right, here we go. If Mike Tyson dream about whooping my ass, he better wake up and apologize. <laughs> Is that the line? I don't think that's the line. It is. There is a line that says, if I don't Mike know. Tyson dream about whooping my ass, he better wake up and apologize. Ghostbusters? Well, isn't there something in Pulp Fiction about if you even dream about that, you better wake up and apologize? Does Harvey Keitel say something about that? Or am I... that's in, It's Reservoir Dogs. And Oh, good uh, Lord. I can't believe I... You're right. Jeez, Michael Madsen says, if you if you shoot me in a... No, it is, it is Harvey Keitel says, if you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. Oh, that's what I'm thinking of, but that's not the movie you're talking about. No, no, I'm talking about something with Mike Tyson, with a Mike Tyson dream that predates Reservoir Dogs. So this must be Hangover. It is not Hangover. Oh, wait a minute. What other movie has stuff about Mike Tyson? I'm I'm at a loss. I don't know this movie, Dingus. Kelly Wand, what is it? Uh, the Replacements. <laughs> no. Or Dr. Fives. Uh, it's, a, it's a little movie from 1989 called Do the Right Thing. 
What? Nah. <laughs> There's no red in that. Yeah, that's uh, uh, Italians. Uh, all right, so what is the use of the color red in Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing? All right, so the Do the Right Thing is very, very big on saturated colors. And, um, and I haven't seen it in so many years. But when you were talking about the, the color red, I immediately flashed on that film and i couldn't remember why i just remembered this really deep saturated red that appears somewhere in the film and i didn't know if it was just generic or what uh so i watched it this week it's on instant watch and uh and there's a really good reason why i remember it because there's this there's this basically this wall that's painted as this bright red backdrop to these three guys who are known as the corner men i don't know if they're ever talked about as that but but it's these three guys who kind of act like a neighborhood greek chorus in a way they just sort of talk about what's going on in the neighborhood they talk about life in general they talk about the heat wave that new york is going through right now um and three guys are, are ml coconut sid and uh and sweet dick willie um, and actually, <laughs> I didn't realize this until I watched it again, Tom, but ML is played by Paul Benjamin, who is Henry Styles in um, in Station Agent. He's the old guy at the beginning who dies. Ah. Um, so each of these guys is, is you know, went on to do other things like like uh, um, Coconut Sid is Frankie Faison, who is Barney in Science of the Lambs. And uh, these three guys are just guys who sit around ribbing each other, but talking about what's going on in the neighborhood in sort of a Greek chorus kind of way. And and they sit on these these re- these rickety old like lawn chair, like folding chairs in front of this bright red wall. And when you see this the, the where they're sitting sort of out of the. Um, in the background of other shots from the pizzeria, it's very clear that, that this wall has just been painted so that you can see it in the shot. The rest of the building is not that bright red. It's been painted over the boarded-up windows. It's these bricks that are just super bright red like a theatrical backdrop. And and this whole feeling of, of the heat that's going on there at that time and the anger and the passion that's going on that it, where everything boils over is really concentrated on that red color. And so it was really gratifying to watch that movie again and realize that's why the color red, when, I, when you mentioned this topic, why Do the Right Thing really popped for me. And does Do the Right Thing hold up? Um, in some ways it does. In some ways some of the actors are really annoying. Um, but, but some of it really holds up, but you know, I don't know that, I, I think we've kind of passed it by in some ways that the, the whole opening sequence is really weird with the opening credits with, Ro, with, um, Rosie, uh, Perez just doing this weird dance at this angry dance at the beginning. I really like that, but it's really weird. Um, and it's got this, this cool thing that, that sideways does where, you know, Tom, you were talking about how, um, the, uh, the music in Descendants kind of leads you to feel certain things. Well, in Sideways, the music just sort of plays like like this jazz sort of thing happening as the as the movie is going on, uh, and the music in Do the Right Thing is just playing through it. Uh, and then, it, it, of course, it plays a big part when Radio Rahim has to turn up Public Enemy whenever he walks into a room. But that's a real, that's a major <laughs> statement that he's making. Um, I mean, I like the movie. I'm not I'm not sure it holds up. And some of the actors are just starting out. Like Martin Lawrence is really annoying, and a couple other people are really annoying. Um, but Danny Aiello is great. John Turturro is great. Uh, Dingus, say the name of the three uh, Greek chorus dudes again. Uh, the, the they're ML Coconut Sid and Sweet Dick Willie. <laughs> All right. So is Dick taste sweet, or the what's in it? 
is sweeter but saltier. Kelly Wan, some of these questions should never even be asked. Because I know they're sideways if they're from that culture. Uh, let me tell you guys my number three choice, favorite use of the color red. Again, as I mentioned, all of mine, and it, I didn't really mean it to turn out this way, uh, two of them that I thought of, that I had in mind already, uh, I ended up using, and it occurred to me they have this in common. They kind of represent the loss of control, and I feel that's part of what's going on with how as well. Um, but my number three, the use of red in this movie has kind of entered the popular lexicon oh. uh, along with uh, and, and, and these other things are referenced along with Wizard of Oz and Alice in Wonderland references which both take place in which are both mentioned in the movie um, you know in Alice in Wonderland you have this idea of going down the rabbit hole uh, Wizard of Oz this not in Kansas anymore thing and in the Matrix there's this idea of taking the red pill uh, so uh-huh. I and, and it's such a kind of a it's, why are you laughing because Kelly went, uh-huh. <laughs> well, that, that's what I mean. Why is Kelly laughing? Why did you go, uh-huh? Because uh, Wachowskis are your gods. <laughs> now, I don't know if you know this, Kelly Wan, but having rewatched The Matrix today, I, The Matrix is so good. I don't know what your deal is. Like this, the red pill thing is such a kind of a throwaway bit. Um you know, they have, there's that great scene. So the, the Matrix has like 30 minutes of setup. And if you just remember seeing the movie the first time, not knowing what it's about, God, that would just, was just awesome the way you had this setup. And then it laid out the premise. And then you had this kind of tutorial level where Larry Fishburne explains the rules. And then the movie just kicks ass for an hour. Uh, I, the Matrix is great. But, but anyway, the whole red pill thing, that scene with Larry Fishburne, uh, Keanu Reeves comes in, and there's a glass of water on the table between them that isn't at all explained. They just sit there, and they talk a little bit, and there's the glass of water. And then they do a bunch of gratuitous stuff with the blue pill and the red pill and Larry Fishburne's outstretched hands reflected in his mirrored sunglasses. And they even have a brief throwaway line where they explain that the red pill is part of a tracer program that's going to help them locate Keanu Reeves in the real world. You know, they, they sort of try to, they make this half-hearted attempt to make it mean something, when really it's just this kind of cool image. Uh, and the, the world of the Matrix, kind of like the production design in 2001, it's got such this kind of cool blue look to it. So again, that red pill really pops, and it represents this, this choice, which is at the heart of part of what makes the Matrix really cool. The Matrix is kind of this this Buddhist repudiation of reality. You know, everything that you see is not real. Fate isn't real. Like, everything's an illusion, and if you just make this choice, you can you can emerge from the illusion and transcend it, kind of. Uh, and I love how that's used as this red pill. Um, what about the girl in the red dress? Were you too busy looking at her? What, what girl in the, in the Matrix? Everybody's wearing, like, black in the Matrix. Nobody has on a red dress. <laughs> you don't remember the girl in the red dress part of the Matrix? Uh, when does the girl have a red dress? Tingus, come on. <laughs> what Help you think me. About the girl in the red dress. Were you too busy looking at her to do the thing with the thing? You don't remember that? And then she turns into the agent, and it's to teach Keanu Reeves not to uh, be thinking with his dick when he's in the Matrix or something. Ah, okay, well, there you go. Even though he never does (laughs) before or after that. (laughs) I don't know why he gets... Oh, yeah, her. She's pretty good. Oh, gun! That's what what the lesson's supposed to be. But he he, he, he won't have to be... He won't have to dodge bullets or 
be seduced by the girl with the red dress. So I think you're just down on the other two movies, and who can blame you? Uh, I mean, the, the, that series just... I, I just wish they'd stopped after the first one, but uh, I, I, The Matrix holds up. I don't know why. Yeah. Actually, I agree with you on the... All the setup's awesome. Because, like, you know, he loses the phone. That part's cool. Yeah, he, he chickens out. Like, in his yeah. first test, he fails. He totally uh, fails. And, uh... And then they just t- they just take him to the interrogation office, and then that scene happens. But you're like, uh, see, the Matrix is it'd be lame to live in the Matrix world. But then we never see it again. It's kind of a bummer. Or we never see the pills either. Well, they've served their purpose. You know, it just represents a choice. Do you take the blue pill or the red pill? And, uh, so, but all right. So there. All right. Go ahead. So there, there's my uh, number three choice, the red pill in Matrix. Uh, Kelly Wan, what is your number two choice that's actually better than How in 2001? And the Matrix, because that's your number three. That means your number two and one are better than the Matrix to you. Oh, no, wait. Your number two is. All right, my number two. I'll bet this is on your list, or I thought it was going to be, more even than How, is in a Phantasm when they go to the other dimension, it's all red, so you know it would be lame, and also it means the gravity's high because it's red. So you learn science. So red, it's phantasm, my number two choice. Is that on yours? That your- the other planet in phantasm is kind of orange. Is it really red? Don't they mention like the sun or something? Like it's got a different sun, so the gravity is different, and they have to squish down the little bodies to make the dwarves. Yeah, but it's red. First off, our sun's orange. At night, wait, I mean, at sunset, when dawn breaks, part one, it's yellow. But then at the end of the day, it's it's orange. It's uh, Phantasm World's Red. What's wrong with you? I don't think you know what colors are. I don't think you... <laughs> I will say one person on this, this podcast is colorblind. Because you said the Matrix World's blue earlier, too, and it's green. You're fucking weird. No, the Matrix has a very sort of cool blue production design thing. Dingus, help me. Um, it's... I don't, what I'm, colors I'm the, the Matrix world? And remember... It's gray, and we're losing Tom again, by the way. But it is, the Matrix is all gray. We're losing him the less sense he makes color-wise. <laughs> uh, look at the cover of the Matrix, the DVD. It's blue and black. Those are the colors in the movie, so suck it. Well, what what color is the lines of code? Yeah. That's not the whole movie, though. That is. That's just the... Computer screen because they have old like they have old LED not LED what do you call those old computer screens that are just green they have those all right so Dingus what is your number two choice for your favorite use of red or in green. a motion picture or green see now I'm starting to be nervous that you stole that you're going to Bogart my number one now that I think about your little theme well mm. I might that might happen so are you going to are you going to do a switcheroo. Ah, switcheroo. No, because I really like my number one a lot. Oh, well. Okay, well, this is my number two, so that that point is moot. All right, here's a quote from my number two. Mm -hmm. Give me a pack of red apples. That's, I don't, uh, pass. Barton Fink. I was going to say, oh, brother, where art thou? Like, maybe there's a, somebody asking for some old-timey cigarettes called red apples. Yeah. Obviously, you don't buy real, actual apples in a pack, so... Obviously, you don't smoke apples. Yeah, I I don't know. I think you stumped us, Dingus. (laughs) All right, well, here's a quote from right before that. See, this business is filled to the brim with unrealistic motherfuckers. Motherfuckers who thought 
their ass would age like wine. If you mean it turns to vinegar, it does. If you mean it gets better with age, it don't. Uh, yeah, Kelly Wan, that sounds like one you should know. Swimming so in Cambodia? <laughs> I, I'm going to guess I haven't seen it. What is this? Zap. Oh, good Lord. Um, this is from the movie Pulp Fiction. Well, you know, it sounded like you were doing your Tarantino voice. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, the the scene in uh, that I'm talking about is the bar slash stripper slash club scene and where Marcellus Wallace is, t- is telling Butch how to throw the fight. And um, that scene uh, is just awash in red. And this th- this was another um, thing that I thought of that I that just sort of came to me almost immediately when uh, Tom suggested this topic because I just had this picture of of the camera sitting on Butch Bruce Willis as Marcellus Wallace is giving this this monologue about you know pride and and you know if you were going to make it you would have made it by now and the the background of the scene is just redness and then as the scene turns around when um, when John Travolta and Samuel Jackson come in you see the deep background is again red. The club is just red, and when you see Marcellus Wallace's head, it it seems bathed in red. And then the side fill on Bruce Willis's face is in red, although he seems like a character outside of this. I mean, he seems like this one lost soul in hell, and uh, and just this whole idea of that of that club, just this neon red, bathed in red. Uh, I just love the way that scene is filmed. That also means the club has really heavy gravity on the inside. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, that's good, Dingus. I wish I'd, I'd... I don't see that as red in my memory, though. Dadgummit. I should probably watch that again. Uh, so what does that mean, then, is, is in the briefcase? Hey. What? Smokes. <laughs> oh, yeah, because the red shines out in Tom's memory of Pulp Fiction of the briefcase. Because Tom... So, um, so Bruce Willis asks... Asks for red apples when he goes to the bar, and, and apparently, uh, since Quentin Tarantino issues product placement, he's he always makes up products like fruit brute and that kind of thing. And red apples that's a real are his, one. Fruit brute's his, real. All right, are his go-to cigarettes red apples? Well, the Big Kahuna Burger. That's not real. No, that's not real. But fruit brute. How can Dingus not know what fruit brute is? That's crazy. I don't even know what that is. What is fruit what? brute? Kelly wand. It's the uh, werewolf one of the Frankenberry, Booberry, uh, Ch- Count Chocula franchise. I grew up in Colorado. We only had generic cereals. They were in white and black boxes. Yeah, and I wasn't allowed to eat sugar as a kid, so I never had any of that stuff. So Cartoon werewolves aren't cross-eyed, but the live-action, hunky, hairless, wax-chested ones are. All right, so Dingus, I've got an asterisk here by my number two. Let's see if you correctly guessed. Uh, I'll give you a line from the movie. You ready? Yes. William Shatner. I'd fight William Shatner. Hmm. Was that your guess? No, you. Uh, I was wrong on both counts. So in Fight Club, of course, uh, I love that boy. That movie has uh, a very blue palette. Um, even if you guys don't agree with me about The Matrix, there's a lot of blue in Fight Club. Um, but Tyler Durden is wearing, like, he's a very red-themed character, and specifically... That red leather jacket Brad Pitt wears throughout, uh, not throughout, but at several scenes in the movie. <laughs> I just love that jacket. Uh, and I love how Tyler Durden's motif is red. Uh, when 
Ed Norton first meets him on the airplane. Tyler Durden is wearing a blazer that's this horribly tacky red plaid blazer. Uh, and we see in the background, Tyler Durden hops into a red car and drives away. Uh, there's a point later in the movie where he's wearing a pink robe uh, that's just crazy. It's dirty, so you can't really tell. But y- you can see at one point it was pink, uh, this fuzzy pink robe. Um so I love the red theme that Tyler Durden has in Pulp Fiction and specific uh, Pulp Fiction in Fight uh, Club and specifically the red leather jacket. Uh, so Dingus, what did you guess? I don't think. Well, you know what? We'll find out. Did you? So you thought my number two was going to be what you chose for your first uh, pick? Uh, at first, I didn't. The, um, I thought your number two was going to be my first runner-up, and then as I started to think, I was worried that you would uh, bogart my number one, but you did not. So good job. Did okay. you watch Fight Club today? I did, yes. That's the one I watched all of. So I didn't watch, all, apparently, to the red-dressed lady in The Matrix, but I did watch all of 2001 in Fight Club. Uh, here's, a line, here's the line I should have used. I have pornographic movies in my apartment and lubricants and amyl nitrite. <laughs> Wait, that's from Pulp Fiction? <laughs> no, he was just saying that. <laughs> yeah, I haven't done the quote yet, Kelly. What? Oh. <laughs> That's you sound just like him. <laughs> uh, God, Fight Club is so good, though. Dad, comment. Uh, now, are you going to disagree with me that Fight Club has a blue motif? Uh, I know that when he's wearing the robe, his gravity's heavier inside the robe. <laughs> uh, Helena Bonham Carter is so blue in that she looks like something out of a Tim Burton movie. Uh, Racist. She really does in that whole last. Uh, those last scenes in that building are so blue. Yep, yep, absolutely. Uh, and there, there are occasionally these kind of like light pastel green motifs. Uh, so, so uh, here we go. So let's go ahead and get Kelly Wand in trouble. So Kelly Wand, one of the reasons that you're a jerk for spoiling uh, this movie. Is it called The Darkest Hour? Their Darkest Hour? Whatever. There's some, like, alien invasion movie that's coming out around Christmas that's probably going to suck. But one of the reasons I realized that I'm really psyched to see it is it's directed by a guy named Chris Gorak. Now, Chris Gorak did a, a movie called Right at Your Door. Uh, it's the only movie he's, he's ever directed. But before he did that, he's been an art director on movies like Fight Club, Man Who Wasn't There, uh, oh, oh, uh, uh, and uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Now, if you don't want to see a movie by the art, art director of Fight Club, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and Man Who Wasn't There, you're insane. I don't want to see a movie about invisible 3D aliens. Yeah, why don't you spoil more of it? Do you? <laughs> I had no idea he had directed another movie. Good, I liked Right at Your Door. And the thing is, Right at Your Door, very low budget. It had some limitations, which I actually thought he got around very well in Right at Your Door. And now I presume they're giving him, you know, a big budget to make some big action-y movie, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. So, Vis- Visible Aliens would have been a bigger budget, wouldn't they? Well, we'll find out. Uh, no, some of us will. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're right. Kelly Wan, uh, Dingus and I, on that week, we're going to do the podcast on Darkest Hour. You are going to do the podcast on War Horse. <laughs> or, or Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> uh, his hands... What are you more looking forward to this holiday season? Sherlock Holmes, War Horse, or The Darkest Hour? War Horse. <laughs> okay, have fun with that. By the way, all 3D involves a red lens, doesn't it? So all 3D movies. So you're saying Avatar was eligible for this? Yeah, and that was a super red movie. Remember how red the Navi were, Tom? Ha ha. 
You haven't got Brad Stinks' number one pick, so stand by for that. Uh, that's a good point. So, Kelly One, what is your number one choice for favorite use of red in a motion picture? All mine are science fiction movies. That's so. Uh, what do you think my number one is based on the fact that I've already done? Now, it. I've already said you can't do Darth Vader's lightsaber from Star Wars. You didn't say I couldn't do uh, the thing on his chest, and you didn't say I couldn't do R two D two, and you didn't say I couldn't do uh, the Ugnaught. Uh, you know, Kelly Wand, what's the <laughs> difference? Doesn't R two D two have a little HAL nine thousand eyeball on yeah. his dome? See, it ruined. That's Lucas's take on HAL. <laughs> R2-D2 He can fly He can fall When he gets shot by he, Jawas. he can carry a lightsaber around Wasn't there a red Ewok Like the Indian Indian Ewok guy How about the Emperor's Guards Didn't they all dress ah, up See Tom yep, yep. Also the red shit in the Star Trek remake That blew shit up The right, red matter well, I'm putting you down for your number one pick being Star Wars R2-D2's Little Red Eye. Wait, Little Red Eye? It's the same size as Hal's. Actually, Hal's is smaller, fool. Haha, you think the Matrix is blue. <laughs> that means it has really low gravity, the Matrix, by the way. That's why he, he can do that jump. And it sidewalk opens up. Okay, my number one is uh, Alien... Which has a lot of cool red shit in it, but my favorite red thing in it, besides the third act, is uh, the Pischetti. Because it's probably the only food that you can't ruin by having it come out of you with an alien spray. Like, you still be hungry for spaghetti after alien, even. All right, so there is red spaghetti and alien, you're saying? I'm saying when they when John Hurt first starts going into convulsions and they mm-hmm. see the red, you go. You, there's a half a second where you go. Well, he was eating spaghetti, so it could just be the sauce. <laughs> no, and then, then the alien comes out. You're like, no, it was the spaghetti's like a cat scare. So there is a very red. Uh, yeah, that first appearance of red. Like he's wearing a white T-shirt, right? Yeah, it's pretty stark. I'll give you that. Sure. Okay. Also, you so, learn that the alien likes spaghetti in that scene, so it's part of the ecosystem. All right. So uh, John Hurt's blood in Alien. No spaghetti. John Hurt's spaghetti. bloody spaghetti in Alien. <laughs> you know, the red pill could have been any color. I think red and blue because they're both primary colors. It could have been yellow. You're right. That that would have been a lot less dramatic, though. You know that's a, you know what Kelly Wand in 2001 they have uh, so you know there's the three astronauts that they've put to sleep and they're the I forget what they call them they're the survey team and right. then there's the two astronauts that are just manning the discovery for the trip to Jupiter. In the pod bay, there are three uh, spacesuits. And they're all very vividly colored, which is a little crazy. One of them is like bright orange, and it's the one that Bowman wears when he goes out to rescue Frank. Uh, there's a bright blue one and a bright yellow one. Why do you say Frank's name like that? Because <laughs> I'm uncertain. Is that his name? Is his name Frank Poole? Yeah, Frank I... Poole. Okay, good, because I wasn't sure. Is What's Bowman's first name? David? David. 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 Okay, good. I do have it. Good. Ha-ha. So anyway, there's three brightly colored. And I remember noticing that when I was watching it today. There's those three goofy, brightly colored ones. And I'm like, that. why would he do that? And it occurs to me... That's probably there for, like, the survey team. Like, they each get their own color. <laughs> they're supposed right. to explore whatever they're going to explore when they get there. And it's like they're color-coordinated survey teams. 
because uh, you know it's probably like for the link to Earth or something, so that people can, you know, each one of them. It's almost like in uh, in Reservoir Dogs, each one of them gets a color. You know, there's right. Mr. Blue, Mr. Orange, and Mr. Yellow. Uh, well, you're saying he's wearing somebody else's spacesuit. Well, yeah, those are the only spacesuits they get. Like when when uh, Floyd, Doctor Floyd, Haywood Floyd. Yeah, exactly. When Haywood Floyd goes to the moon, they just have these very straightforward monochromatic spacesuits. So I noticed then on the Discovery, for whatever reason, they have these three brightly colored spacesuits sitting around, and that's probably for the survey team to wear. So they well, the moon's monochromatic, but they're going through a wormhole, so they got to be color coordinated for the. Uh... Also, in the book, they go through. He goes through the wormhole, and the stars are black, and the space is white. So that's how he knows he's in another land. Yeah, that's that's not canon though. The novelization of 2001 is not canon. <laughs> uh, Dingus, what is your number one choice for the use of red in a motion picture that you thought I would uh, bogart from you? Also, in Star Wars, we have Red Leader standing by. Ooh! <laughs> and, and Luke's Red 5, but in the book, he's Blue 5. Very good. Also, not Kelly, canon. Would you do uh, an impression of Tom saying the word Frank? And, and, and it, Frank. Good. He just killed him, and something else happened. Oh, dude, you can play him in the game. Oh, it's so awesome. She's totally OP. I really was like, if that that just if Frank Pools is such a stupid name. Dave Bowman, awesome name. Hayward Floyd, awesome and, name. Frank Pool. I wasn't sure that I had that right. I, uh, in the fourth one, in 3001, the book, it's about Frank Pool, like the aliens bring him back. Because he's, he's perfectly preserved because he's in space, and he's all, wait, what happened? How? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was a thousand years ago. Man, I'm going to have to read that. That sounds awesome. Shut up, bastard. I've always wondered what happened to Frank Poole. I'm glad that they cleared that up. The uh, aliens, uh, after they're, we're on trial for, like, should the aliens kill us or not? And so Frank Poole's like our lawyer or something. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. Good move, Arthur C. Clarke. Well done. See? You thought it didn't make any sense. Don't you feel silly? Don't you have red egg yolk on your face? Moves to Matrix. All right, Dingus, what do you got for us? What is your number one pick that you thought I would choose as my number two choice? All right, my number one uh, has a quote, and the quote is by a guy, a character named Frank. Ooh, that's a good clue. Frank or Frank? <laughs> it's, it's Frank. It's Frank. Hmm. All right, here we go. I'm sorry I lost my temper. Hannah, I love you very much. Keep away from me. Stay where you are. Keep away from me. But it's just blood, though. <laughs> also, his name is Frank in that? I don't like that. I don't think anybody in a movie should ever be named Frank. It's a terrible name. Why? And certainly not a... What about a, Frank Hardy? And certainly not, Hardy a, voice. certainly not a stately British character like that, Dingus. I, no. I, I know what this is, but I can't believe his name is Frank. I, that's what I'm having a hard trouble getting. That's at. what it is. You just hate the name Frank. Did you remember his daughter was named Hannah? I didn't until you said it, but I can hear him saying that. I mean, I can hear, I can more hear the, uh, I don't know the black actress's name. I can more hear her saying the daughter, saying Hannah's name. Uh, What is her name? I've seen her in something recently. Gabare Sidibe. Say it again. Gabare Sidibe. 
Say it, Tom. That's I'm the kidding. girl. That's the girl from Precious. Dingus. I don't. It's, it's the girl from Tower Heist. <laughs> Uh, so right. no, the, uh, but yes, <laughs> Hannah. I did remember as you said it. I still don't believe his name is Frank. I think you're. I think you're. You're griefing me on this. Girl from Tower Eyes. That's for Dingus. <laughs> Trumps you. Get it? <laughs> All right. So the movie I'm talking about is 28 Days Later, um, from 2002, uh, directed by Danny Boyle. Well, I think you're doing because there's a lot of red. Okay, I'm done. No, it's and it's the moment that I've wanted to use for a couple things and couldn't. Uh, or didn't, and it's uh, where uh, Frank has gone off to cool off. That's not his uh, name. I'm sorry, Brendan Gleeson has gone off to cool off after losing his temper, and there's a bird uh, up on a platform up overhead pecking at at a at a dead body, and uh, and squawking and bothering him. And Frank, I'm sorry, Brendan Gleeson says, you know, get out of it, and then he walks over and kicks the the sheet metal wall, and looks up, and uh, a drop of blood falls. And as the drop of blood falls, you get a point of view shot from inside the drop of blood. Oh, good, Dingus, yes. Uh, so the entire screen is red as the camera goes right down into into the eyeball. Well, not really, but but the the eye the uh, the drop of blood goes into his eye, and that's and that's how he becomes infected, of course. And that that shot and that and the scene that follows as he's trying to control himself for that last moment gets me every single time. And I just love that setup where you just zap inside that drop of blood. I and wish so we... that uh, loss of control when you were talking about that. I thought, well, maybe that's where Tom is going. It is a good one, I, and I wish we could think of his character's name in the in the movie because I bet it's something cool. Uh, but by the way, the actress I was thinking of is Naomi Harris, and the reason oh, that okay. I, I and she I can hear her saying Hannah because uh, she you know has to look after Hannah after that, and and I I know that because she's the new Bond girl by the way, Ooh. in the next James Bond movie. Uh, good uh, pick, Dingus. Uh, all right, awesome. what do you guys guess is my number one choice for favorite use of red in a movie? That represents uh, loss of control. Bella's eyes at the end of Breaking Dawn, Part One. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> you saw a Twilight movie. <laughs> oh. Uh, all right, so runners up, gentlemen. What did you have as uh, a runner up? Anything besides R two D two? The one that one that I almost thought you were going to go with um, as another loss of control is uh, the blood pouring out of um, Eli um, in Ooh, Let the Red. Good, very good. Yeah. And what? <laughs> Let the right one in. Yeah. Oh. Right. The, the good version. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to do blood, though, because that's... Uh, that's own thing. Yeah. Different category. Yeah. Unlike Kelly Wan's choice of spaghetti sauce. <laughs> Don't worry. I have three, my three-by-three's choices of blood. Uh, did, you, did you have any runners-up, Kelly Wan, for, for your... Uh, I thought of uh, the bloody sheet in Unbreakable Wall... Bruce Willis is finding out that everybody died on the train, even though it kind of bugs me because you go, what kind of hospital is this where someone's bleeding to death and, the, and there's no, like, machinery or doctors caring? But, okay, we're losing them. Like, no. And I remember we talked about that during, I guess it was the best uses of blood, uh, three by three. Uh, I remember one of you guys explaining that to me. I had I didn't remember that scene, but that sounds like an awesome scene. Also, Rumblefish. Remember how that movie ended? It's got fish. Red, fish are red. Right, because that was another black and white one, and then there's right. a gratuitous touch of red. Are you sure the fish weren't orange? Or blue? Were they blue, Kelly Wand? To you, they were green. To the rest of us, they're blue. <laughs> to Kieslowski, they're red, white, and blue. 
You know what? Red, white, and blue. Uh, I remember blue very well because of Juliette Binoche. I remember white fairly well. I don't remember red that well. That's the one that. Uh, See, racist. What, ha- what happens in red? And who's even the, who's even in that one? Uh, that guy, Chief Bromden. The girl from Before Sunrise. That's Juliet Delpy, isn't she in white? Oh, she's in white. Racist. No, it's some model, I think, in red. Oh. Well, there you go. I haven't seen those in forever, so I don't feel bad about not remembering. I think those are just out on Blu-ray, by the way, recently. So, Kelly Wand, why are those movies called Red, White, and Blue? Oh, because those are the colors of um, the uh, hammer and sickle. (laughs) You're close. Do you actually know the answer to this? It's Krzysztof Kierzlowski. He's a Polish director. Uh, They're the colors of the French flag. Oh, but then they steal that from us. But then they gave us the statue, even though that was green, like the Matrix. I think they've been around a little longer than we have. They got there first. Yeah, but we our revolution happened right before theirs, and they're all, hey, we're going to do what you did, but with guillotines. Oh, yeah, Quills. That had the red guillotine credit <laughs> at the beginning, remember? Uh, I don't. Yeah. The woman's head gets cut off, and then it's all red, and then it's all Quills. That's the sound of it. <laughs> In my mind. When a head, woman's head gets cut off, it sings sonorously. That's lovely. Uh, all right, so let's do a three by three next week. What are we going to do, Kelly Wand? What do you got for us? Mm, this one sounds kind of boring. You know what? I'm sure we can uh, liven it up. Hit us. What do you <laughs> got? Right. Okay, remember in King Kong when uh, Jack Black, Tom's favorite character. Oh, God. I hate, I hate your three by three already. <laughs> no. Hang on. Okay. He says something like, his name's going to be in lights, and it's going to be awesome. And then the next scene is like, it says <laughs> King Kong in lights. Like, it's, it spells out the words in lights or something. <laughs> and uh, so that's like one of the, that's Peter Jackson's, like, that's one of the, re- he was really excited. Like, yeah, it's one of the greatest transitions in movies. So what I want from you <laughs> is your three best transitions and it can be like lines of dialogue that are ironic. They can be like poo jokes. I know I'll be going there once I run out of ideas. Tom, do you understand this topic at all? Uh, yes, Frank. <laughs> do you like it? You think it's the greatest topic I've ever offered? Have we not done this one? Shut up, <laughs> Dingus. Have we? You're the arbiter. <laughs> I feel like uh, we've done every topic. I'll look I'm currently away from. I'm away from my master list, so I can't. All right, if we've done it, I'll make it something good. No, no. So just three best transitions. Okay. Now I'm not clear what you think you mean, but I I could do something <laughs> with that. Uh, I'm okay. I gave that. an example. <laughs> that means everything makes sense that I say. All right. Did you understand my example even? Oh. Uh, no, because Jack Black was involved, so I sort of stopped out. listening. He's they're on the island, and he says something like, "We're King, we're gonna, King Kong will be in his name will be in lights in three months," and then the next shot is the marquee. So he's like, in two seconds of screen time, he's he's glossed over like how to get Kong to New York and like set it up. Like now it's opening night of the show, so it's this really economical time compression thing. Where... So you just want a cut, like an edit, like a like or, the, the, uh, the the bone to the spaceship in two thousand one that kind of thing yeah the bonus spaceship good tom all right so just uh okay but or it can be dialogue based like 
boy, she would like to rotate her tires, and then it cuts to uh, Ryan Gosling uh, working on Michelle Williams's car and drive. <laughs> I mean, Carrie Mulligan. <laughs> I got confused. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can do something with this. We'll see what happens. How about that? It's not stupider than red, you jerk. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly Wand, you and I saw eye to eye on that one. Come on. Get it? That get was it? great. Yeah, get I totally it. get it. You were the R2D2 eye, and I was the HAL eye, though. I think we can both agree. Uh, that's no fair. Uh, 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 all right, so uh, next week, three best transitions. We'll be seeing a movie called Shame, uh, directed by uh, Steve McQueen. It's not the Steve McQueen you think, and it's not. I think there's actually a an older movie called oh. Shame about a, a woman who gets, like, raped. and then, It's like a revenge movie, if I'm not mistaken. It's not that movie. It's the movie that actually starts next week. Uh, so we'll be seeing Shame. Um, it's got Michael Fassbender in it, but not the Michael Fassbender that we know. It's got the alternate <laughs> universe one and Steve McQueen. Uh, it's also rated NC-17, so there might be... <laughs> or language, like yeah. uh, The Descendants. NC-17. Uh, and then after that, we'll be bringing you our 3x3, three three, uh, courtesy of Kelly Wand, of our favorite transitions. <laughs> Didn't you say uh, all movies with cigarettes in it should be in C-17? Was that you? Yes, that is my stance. I believe that all movies with cigarettes should not allow, no children should be allowed to see that, and smoking should be banned from all television. What do you think of that, Kelly Wand? What about banning time travel? Wasn't that you too, or was that China? That's okay. As, lo- yeah, as long as kids don't see it, I'm okay with that. What about does does get that out of my face count as a transition? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That yeah, is, it's transitioning from comedy to drama. Uh, so join us for that. Uh, I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian Markroski. It's Christian Maroski. And Kelly Wand. Elena Bonham Carter hasn't been in a Tim Burton movie since grade school. Transitions. La la la. (laughs) It needs larynx, huh? Larynx? Marinx. Body switch movie, uh, do the right thing and wrongfully accused. <laughs> <laughs>